Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. Well, let's read our scripture for this morning, 2 Corinthians 6, verse 14 through chapter 7, verse 1. 2 Corinthians 6, 14 through 7, 1. Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. Just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean. And I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty." Aren't those wonderful promises there? Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. This is the word of the Lord. Now this passage contains one of the most unfortunate chapter breaks in the whole Bible. Remember these chapter breaks, these verse numbers are not something that God put here. These are what men have put here to help us find our way, right? And they put this one in in the wrong place, frankly. This chapter break between chapter 6 verse 18 and chapter 7 verse 1 has the potential of undermining, totally undermining or at least obscuring the truth of God. Do you see how this could happen? You're reading along and you're reading in your Bible reading plan and you're reading 2 Corinthians 6. You get the end of, of chapter six. You read God's commands to be separate from unbelievers. You read these amazing promises at the end of chapter six. I will be a father to you. I'll welcome you. I'll, you'll be sons and daughters to me. You read those promises on, let's say, Tuesday and you close your Bible and you, you go away. And then, is it Wednesday. Thursday, is it Friday? Whenever it is, depending on how disciplined you are. You pick up your Bible and you keep on reading where you left off in 2 Corinthians. So you open to chapter 7, verse 1. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. And so what just happened? Well, unless you have a very good memory and remember what you just read, you know, the last time in chapter six, or unless you love the importance of little words like therefore, and so you, you want to figure out what it's there for, you just miss the whole point of a, of a powerful passage of God's word. This chapter, what this chapter break obscures for us is that the point of chapter six, 14 to 18 is chapter seven, verse one. That is the point. So what's the point of giving us these promises at the end of chapter six? The point is what comes after the therefore. 
The point is chapter seven, verse one. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Now, why does that, why does that seem strange to us? It seems strange because the Holy Spirit put two things together that we want to keep infinitely apart, right? The Holy Spirit puts together the rich promises of the gospel of the grace of God and the command to fear God. He puts them right there together. And the Holy Spirit doesn't just happen to mention these two things kind of close to one another, just kind of randomly. This is not a random but you know, meaningless happenstance as if the word promises just happens to come close to the word fear. No, the Holy Spirit binds these two together inseparably. The Holy Spirit says, since you have these gospel promises, since you have these promises of the grace of God, since you have these promises of the merciful fatherhood of God, where he welcomes you and makes you his children, since you have those promises, use those promises to fear the Lord. Use those promises to fear the Lord. And that does not make sense to us, does it? We're not used to putting those things together. It doesn't make sense to us because we have been taught that the gospel of God, the grace of God, and the fear of God are mutually exclusive. We have been taught that they do not and in fact cannot go together and should not go together. And so that's hard for us to understand. We want either or. We want either fear or love, but not both. And so when we hear about the fear of the Lord, here's where we go. Immediately we go to a place like 1 John 4.18, 1 John 4.18, it says, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves punishment, and the one who fears is not perfected in love. See, there it is, that these things are, in the Bible, mutually exclusive. You can't have them both, you have one or the other. What are you telling me about fearing God? I'm a Christian. Or we say, Romans 8.15. Romans 8.15 says, for you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. There it is. Again, fear and love are incompatible. Not fear, but love. Now, of course, there is a kind of fear that is not godly and that doesn't and shouldn't exist in the godly. It's the kind of fear that has no faith and no love in it. It's the kind of fear that the demons have, right? The demons who who tremble before God. It's not the kind of fear that's filled with faith and love. It's the kind of fear that dreads God's judgment in a way that is hopeless, godless. That is obviously not what Scripture is talking about when it commands us to fear the Lord. It is not talking about a slavish fear that has no love and no faith in it. And even if we've never actually been taught this, systematically and on purpose, that, uh, 
Fear and love never mix, and we've certainly caught it from the atmosphere of American evangelicalism. American evangelicalism oozes this notion that fear and love never embrace. It comes out in how we have reduced the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ to a sentimental emblem, a nice, beautiful, pretty sentimental emblem that represents our own loveliness, right? Our own loveliness. Jesus loved us, he, he loved me so much because I'm lovable. Isn't that sweet? No, actually the cross is a terrible demonstration of our wickedness and of the, of the crushing holiness of God. It comes out in how we think about leadership in the church and in the home. It comes out in the way we worship. In how all of our worship is soft and sentimental and easy and has no place for fear and trembling. And so I don't care what church you've grown up in, uh, what books you've read. If you're alive in 21st century America, you have caught this notion that fear and love are mutually exclusive. It's in the air that we breathe. It's constantly coming in on us. And we have to push it back. We have to blow it back with the air of of God's word. How many times have you heard that when the Bible speaks of fearing the Lord, it's just talking about reverence and awe, you know, just respect. Just talking about respect. And the problem with that is that the Holy Spirit speaks in words. And he uses actual particular words when he speaks in the Bible. And when he breathed out the words of scripture, he used particular words. And in Hebrew, there are three different words, usually translated fear. And those three words, you know what they mean? They mean fear. Or even terror, or even dread. That's what those words mean. The words that the Holy Spirit chose to use. For example, Psalm 119.20. David says, my flesh trembles for fear of you, and I am afraid of your judgments. This is not him just saying, I have a kind of respect for your judgments. I fear, I tremble, I'm afraid. And there are other words that he could have used if he just meant honor or respect. Honor your father and mother is one of the words he could have used. He didn't use that word. In Greek, the word fear or terror is phobeo, it means, it's where we get our word phobia. We all know what that word means. Ask my wife. Spiders, yeah. She has an un, <laughs> an irrational fear of spiders. Um, but the fear of God is not irrational. It's not a phobia. So even with this distinction in both Hebrew and Greek, so many Christians still assert that fear merely means reverence or respect, as if God and the Holy Spirit couldn't choose the right word. The tragedy of the the modern American church is that we are no longer capable of being terrified. We're no longer capable of being terrified of God. The church should be a place of terror again. The church should be a place where God has to say what he always says, fear not. 
We've taken that necessity away. We don't need that anymore. We've got that one gone. Now, where does this come from? Why do we as American evangelicals tone down the fear of the Lord? Well, there are several reasons. One of them is a doctrinal reason. For example, Psalm 19.9 says, the fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. And there is a system of doctrine that has been the system of doctrine for American evangelicals for the last 150 years. And that system of doctrine is represented clearly by an old Bible that some of you own or maybe your parents owned or your grandparents. It's called the Schofield Reference Bible. And in that Bible, where there are notes explaining what the scripture means, you go down, the fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. You go down to the note and it says this, the fear of the Lord is a phrase of Old Testament piety. Right, you got that? It's a phrase of Old Testament piety. Old Testament piety, Old Testament godliness. This is what the guys in the Old Testament did to be godly. You know, this is what marked them for their godliness, the fear of the Lord, the Old Testament. Now, what does that clearly imply? It clearly implies that the fear of the Lord was a characteristic of Old Testament piety as distinguished from New Testament piety. In other words, the fear of the Lord was an Old Testament law thing, but in the New Testament, we're under grace and we don't fear God anymore, we just love him. We don't need the fear of the Lord anymore. And the problem with that, of course, is it's utterly, completely, scandalously, grossly unbiblical to say that. I mean, it's really awful. It is completely wrong to assert that the fear of the Lord is a uniquely Old Testament thing, the love of the Lord is a uniquely New Testament thing. As if the love of the Lord does not appear in the the Old Testament and the fear of the Lord does not appear in the New Testament. Luke 12, four and five, Jesus, our Lord said, I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that have no more that they can do, but I will warn you whom to fear. Fear the one who after he has killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. This is not the devil. This is God. Fear him. By command of our Lord Jesus, fear him. Acts 9.31. What caused the church to grow and increase? Acts 9.31. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace being built up and going on in the fear of the Lord. And in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it continued to increase. The church grew because it feared the Lord. Philippians 2.12. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Hebrews 4.11. Therefore, let us fear. Let us fear. We need to fear. Let us fear. If while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may, be, may seem to have come short of it. First Peter 1.17, if you address as father, the one who impartially judges according to each man's work, conduct yourselves in fear. There they are, right there together again. Fatherhood, the fatherhood of God. If you address as father, the one who impartially judges according to each man's work, conduct yourself in fear. Fatherhood of God does not remove the fear of God. It establishes it. 
1 Peter 2.17, honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God. Honor the king. And so contrary to Schofield, contrary to that whole system of doctrine that he represents, the fear of the Lord is not a phrase of Old Testament piety. The fear of the Lord is simply a phrase of piety, period. This is what it means to be pious, what it means to be godly. You cannot be godly apart from the fear of the Lord. But we have allowed ourselves to be told that New Testament Christians should not fear the Lord. Another reason that evangelical churches are filled with people who do not fear the Lord is, has to do with how we evangelize. So you became a Christian, if you are one, in the air of this kind of evangelism that almost inoculates you against the fear of the Lord. Think of the, of the typical evangelistic appeals that have been popular for the last 150 years. There's some kind of variation of God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Isn't that nice? And the evangelical church has almost completely abandoned what our forefathers called law work, law, God's law, the work of the law, in preparing people to understand and embrace the gospel in a way that actually saves them. We have abandoned the kind of preaching and evangelism that strips people bare, that leaves them open and, and, and exposed before a holy God, that leaves them hopeless, except for one thing, the blood of Jesus Christ. We've stopped declaring to unregenerate people that there is a holy God in heaven who has holy laws that they must obey. That those unbelievers, your friends, your family member, the people who work with you, God has placed on them holy laws that they must obey. But we don't talk to them about the holy laws that they must obey. We've been so afraid of being called legalists that we've completely abandoned the kind of preaching the kind of evangelism that in the past led to great awakenings and lasting conversions. And we look around, we say, ah, oh, there are no great awakenings or lasting conversions. I wonder why. We shouldn't wonder why. We've abandoned the kind of evangelism and preaching that leads to those things. And we've done it on purpose. Our evangelism is all about forgiveness and heaven and wonderful plans and we've stopped telling unregenerate people that God requires them to obey and that God judges them for not obeying, that God's wrath lives on them for not obeying. We've stopped telling them that God says, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. We've stopped telling them what Jesus himself declares, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life. He cannot be my disciple. He can't even become my disciple unless you do these things as you come. We don't, we, don't, we don't go there. We don't say that. We've forgotten the apostle Paul's own testimony about the law in his life, in his conversion. In Galatians 2.19, for through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. 
In other words, we have inoculated our converts against the fear of the Lord from the very beginning. We ourselves have been inoculated against the fear of the Lord. Because the evangelism of the modern evangelical church never starts with the law of God, the holiness of God, the demands of God, the wrath of God, the certain, inevitable, terrible judgment of God. Instead, we start with the love of God, the mercy of God, and the forgiveness of God. And what does that lead to? What kind of Christian does that kind of evangelism produce? What kind of church does that kind of evangelism lead to? This book by Ian Murray called The Old Evangelicalism, Old Truths for a New Awakening is the subtitle. Ian Murray deals with this over and over again, points us back to the way things used to be and the way things should be, shows us our weakness compared to them. And in this chapter one, preaching and awakening, he says this, where the gospel is presented solely as forgiveness, only as a change of status before God, it may appeal to the self-interest of the unregenerate. So just forgiveness. Nothing happens in me, I just get forgiven. It may appeal to the self-interest of the unregenerate. A person may believe that message and still be content to live an unchanged life. He becomes a Christian and yet knows no moral ethical revolution. But where the conscience is more thoroughly dealt with by the law of God, a larger need comes into view and one which forgiveness alone would not answer. There must also be a change of nature, a deliverance from self, a new life. The desire of a true convert is that he may never sin again. Such a person will pray as William Wilberforce once prayed, "Oh God, deliver me from myself. It is true that under any type of preaching, conversions will occur that do not last, but the danger of the superficial and, and the temporary is vastly increased when the message of holiness is treated as though it has no re- relevance to conversion. It was a bad day for the churches when evangelistic meetings and holiness meetings were separated as though the latter could come at some later stage of discipleship. This happened when the preaching of the law ceased to be regarded as part of evangelism and with that omission came a disappearing sense of sin. That in turn led to the idea of conversion not as deliverance from the power of sin but as something much less. And when conviction of sin was found to be absent in gospel hearers, other reasons too often came to be proposed to justify their need of faith in Christ. If you don't need, faith, if you don't need Christ because you're a sinner, and you're under the wrath of God, well then you must need him for something. So what is it? The result has been converts who never knew that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and who never learned to say, oh, how I love your law. As the numbers of such people grew, so the churches became little different in life from the world. And here we are. Later on in the book, Murray quotes an English pastor from the late 1700s who basically gives you the, uh, the recipe for us. Here's the recipe. Here's how you get to where we are today. 
He says, leave out the holy character of God. Leave out the holy excellence of his law. Leave out the holy condemnation to which transgressors are doomed, the holy loveliness of the Savior's character, the holy nature of redemption, the holy tendency of Christ's doctrine, and the holy tempers, attitudes, and conduct of all true believers. Leave all that out. Then dress up a scheme of religion of this unholy sort. Represent mankind in a pitiable condition, rather through misfortune than crime, their own crime. Speak much of Christ's bleeding love to them, of his agonies on the garden and on the cross, without showing the need or the nature of satisfaction for sin. Speak of his present glory and of his compassion for poor sinners, of the freeness with which he dispenses pardons, of the privileges which believers enjoy here, and of the happiness and glory reserved for them hereafter. Clog this, clog this with nothing about regeneration and sanctification. Don't complicate it with that kind of nonsense. Or represent holiness as somewhat else than conformity to the holy character and law of God. And you make up a plausible gospel. What you get is a plausible gospel calculated to humor the pride, soothe the consciences, engage the hearts and raise the affections of natural men who love nobody but themselves. This is where we are. This is where we are. This is us. That is what is accepted as normal in the church today. And so what happens? When we come to a passage like this, we come to a passage like 2 Corinthians 6 and 7, it's almost inevitable that we miss the connection between chapter 6, verse 1, and chapter 7. Even if we see it, we don't want to see it. So with that in mind, let me read this passage again. Do not be bound together with unbelievers for what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness or what fellowship is light with darkness or what harmony has Christ with Belial or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever or what agreement has the temple of God with idols for we are the temple of the living God. Just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean and I will welcome you and I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. God has given you his sweet and gracious and magnificent gospel promises. Why? So that you can use those promises to deepen and intensify your fear. This is exactly the opposite of all of our assumptions today. We assume that God gives us his sweet and gracious and magnificent gospel promises so that we can use those promises to lessen and minimize our fear which is just another way of saying we assume God gives us his sweet and gracious and magnificent gospel promises so that we can use those promises to lessen and diminish our obedience. That's what, that's what it all boils down to. Because even the fear of God is not the ultimate end in 2 Corinthians 7.1. The ultimate end, the goal of, that the Holy Spirit is driving us to is obedience. 
Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. The point is obedience, cleansing ourselves, perfecting holiness. And God gives us his gospel promises so that we will fear him and he commands us to fear him so that we will obey him. And so we must use his gospel promises to cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit and to perfect holiness in the fear of God which is simply to say that fear and love embrace in the godly. That's where godliness comes from. Fear and love coming together in the gospel. That's why the Holy Spirit describes the height of depravity in Romans chapter three as there is no fear of God before their eyes. So, do your sins cause you to tremble before a holy God. You have sins, I have sins. Do they cause you to tremble before a holy God? Or do you, have you twisted scripture in such a way that the gospel makes you without compunction of conscience? Without a conscience. Whenever your conscience speaks, you silence it by twisting the grace of God into licentiousness, lawlessness. Have you twisted the gospel so that you use it to make a truce with your sin? What do you give yourself to? What's the flavor of your life? You know what I'm saying? What's the smell of your life? What's the, what's the aroma? Is there any weight, is there any weight to you, any gravity, any sobriety? When people think of you, do they think, that's a God-fearing man, that's a God-fearing woman? The fear of the Lord, when you have it, it permeates all of your life. It's, it, it drips down into the cracks of your life. It soaks in to you. It's not something you can take on or take off at will. If, it, if you can take it on or take it off, then you don't have it. Do you know the fear of the Lord down in your bones? If you do not, then you don't know the Lord. You don't know the Lord. If you don't fear the Lord, then you don't love him. And if you want to have life and peace, then you must fear the Lord. If you want to know his compassion, if you want to know his forgiveness, if you want to know his blessings, you must fear him. Hear these words, I'm going to read them and be done. From Psalm 103, hear these words. The Lord has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. That is wonderful and sweet. The Lord has not awarded us, rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness toward those who fear him. 
towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. What a wonderful promise. Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he himself knows our frame. He's mindful that we are but dust. As for man, his days are like grass, as a flower of the field, so he flourishes. When the wind has passed over it, it is no more, and its place acknowledges it no longer. But the loving kindness of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. And his righteousness to children's children. Fear the Lord. You young people, fear the Lord. Life, blessing, compassion, mercy. This is what God gives to those who fear him. Let's pray.